Hello and welcome to episode 10 of season two of A Positive Podcast. My name is Razel Schusterman and I'm a positive psychology-based life coach. And from time to time, I interview speakers who I think can help bring awareness to the topics that families are facing and shine some light on these topics to help bring awareness to our communities. Um, today's podcast is sponsored in honor of Chaim Elazar Kayan for a speedy recovery by his family. If you are interested in being a sponsor for any of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me via my website, apositivecoach.com, or email me at razel at jewishpeabody.com. Today's guest is Dr. Akiva Perlman. Akiva Perlman is an international speaker on topics of abuse, addiction, and trauma. He has educated several hundred from social workers from our community and is currently serving as a professor at Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Dr. Perlman is a clinical director of ODA's Wellness Institute, a clinic which serves the Hasidic community in Williamsburg. He maintains a small practice in Fresh Meadow, where he resides with his wife, Tamar, who is also a therapist, and his children. So hello, Akiva, and thank you for taking the time to talk with my husband, Nehemi, and myself. I've heard about you a number of times over the last few months, and then I had the privilege to meet you at the Kesher Nafshi retreat a few weeks ago, and I was immediately taken by your kind and caring personality. Um, that was the first thing that came up when I met you, that you care. Thank you. I had also been speaking with your incredible brother, Sonny Perlman who is an amazing person and runs the Our Village, a kosher sober home in Muncie, New York. And today's podcast is a conversation about therapy. Trauma, 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 trauma. That's all I've been hearing. It seems like to be the most common used word right now. And in most of our conversations, this word's coming up. It's actually becoming a trigger word for some people. And it seems like many people are reaching out and looking for help and guidance and our community and our mindsets are more open than ever before to go to therapy. And so many people are looking for direction, are not sure how or where to turn to find the correct um, modality or the correct therapist. And that's what prompted me to connect with you and um, create a conversation that people will find educational and helpful. And today I have the honor and privilege to be sitting along with my husband, Nehemi Schusterman, um, who on occasion will be interviewing different people as well in our podcast, different topics within the recovery world. And he actually is the guy who's sort of my manager and helps me find and book different interviews. And he's been in touch with Dr. Pullman privately prior to today's conversation. So if you enjoy today's podcast, please share it with your friends and family. And thanks for listening. Okay, so Dr. Pullman, or would you rather I call you Akiva? Please, Akiva. My good yeah. friends call me Kiwi, but uh, I keep good enough. I think it's one of my professional regrets is moving away from... Uh, my name that I'm most comfortable with, Kiwi. I think there was a period of time I felt insecure about it. Ah. And, uh, I made a, a poor decision in that moment to try to externally sound more professional. I hear that. Opposed to resolving it more internally. But we'll stick with Akiva. It's good. Okay. I love your honesty. Okay, so let's jump right into it. You and your wife are both therapists in the Jewish community. And additionally, you train from religious therapists helping to you know, shore up the extreme dearth of mental health professionals in the Jewish community. And your other two brothers, if I'm not mistaken, are also therapists. That's correct. I, I think it's clear that you guys are, you are both an expert in the field of therapy and clearly your family is one that is caring, kind, because that, that's something I, I got from both of you and your brother and care so much about helping others. So basically this is like a long preamble to my first question. To the extent that you're comfortable with or comfortable to share, is there anything in your personal or family's past that brought you to all of this into this field? And, you know, there's a notion that many therapists are what we call wounded healers, meaning that they are healing from a place of hurt and they want to not just rectify their lives, but help others. 
and, and I've seen this actually with different therapists that I think that they're actually really therapists that people really connect with are those that have had experience and can understand their pain and really connect with them. So is this true in your case? And is that a good or bad thing? Like, mm. what's your opinion on that? What can you share with us? I uh, love the question. And first of all, it's a great honor to be here. Uh, and I really appreciate the very kind introduction. Uh, and I had the same feeling meeting the two of you, to be quite honest. There was a warmth. There was a caring for, for our people, for suffering and finding ways to creative, creatively bring some healing into the world. Um, so, so thank God, I'm one of eight, um, raised in a single parent household. My mother was the primary caregiver um, through, through much of my childhood, through our childhood. And the bottom five of us are all therapists. So it's not just three, there are five Perlmans, five Perlmans who are therapists and two of us are married to therapists. So it's one big mess, uh, a beautiful mess. Um, and, and of course it comes from a certain place. You know, when you talk about the, you know, my, my experience, there's no question that I, I really see myself or view myself through the lens of some form of wounded healer, which we could talk about in a minute. But before that, um, we were raised with a very strong sense of mission by our mother. Um, she raised us with a sense that you should be conscientious of a universal suffering that exists in the world and do whatever you possibly can to provide some form of healing. Um, be in a space where you could be a part of the solution as opposed to the problem. Um, so I think we were infused very, very early on with a sense of mission when it comes to, if you're here in this very tenuous world that we live in, do something good with your time, um, provide a little bit of healing. And, and she herself was a therapist, um, but we definitely grew up in a home where there were many, many different types of people um, it was very open to, especially to those who were suffering and had no other place to go. It was a common phenomenon for me to walk home and find like a, a wayward teenager just sleeping on the couch, sometimes for weeks on end, um, because they had nowhere else to go. And they knew that our home was a place that they could come and crash. Um, and the fact that most of us as, as children have sort of embodied that as a lifestyle for ourselves um, with a little bit more boundaries, um, is, is not a coincidence. It was really by design. It came from a place of, of deep conscientiousness and care and trying to bring, you know, the term that's become very popular at this point is like some, some healing in the world, Tikkun Olam. Um, but we grew up with that concept from day one. Um, and that's the positive element of it. The, the wounded healer part of it is inevitably when you grow up in a home with a, a single parent who really, you know, my mother did everything she could and did it exceedingly well. Um, it was common for us to, to wake up, uh, you know, to be woken up at, at 5 a.m. Um, and my mother is like sort of changing us because that was the time that she could do the laundry. Um, so she was doing everything she possibly could to make sure that all our needs were, were taken care of and met. Um, but the reality is growing up in a, in a home like that, that there's going to be pain, not because someone did anything wrong, or not because there was an attempt to inflict pain on anyone, but there's a reality that one lives with that when you, you grow up with certain things that are absent, it's impossible for a single mother to play both roles. Um, so growing up with, the, with an absentee parent um, just leaves one with a sense of pain and a sense of yearning um, for that element that's been missing in their life. Uh, and I think when I, when I, think about my trajectory into this field, a lot of it comes from this ideology or, or this idealism 
that was infused very early on. But a lot of it also comes from the reality that I lived with a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. Uh, just today, I was talking with uh, a therapist that I work with who I'm supervising. Uh, he's working at, at the clinic, uh, ODA. And we were talking about that, like just what's it like to encounter your own younger self? Um, and he asked me at some point, I was asking him about himself and his own life um, from an emotional point of view, not necessarily a cognitive point of view. And he just asked me like, what were you like when you were 10? And I said, I, I, to be honest, I'd rather not speak about it at this moment, but just so you know, like that, that question elicits tears. The question sort of brings up within me pain uh, when, I, when I look back at that part of my life and there's so much to be grateful for, um, but that was the greatest training one could get when you're trying to sensitize yourself to the, to the world around you and to the fact that people are struggling. Um, the fact that it's something that's visceral, you could feel within yourself, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it gives you access to that type of pain. But on the other hand, we could really misuse it and we could hurt people with that, um, assuming that everyone experiences the world the same way we do. Um, I remember uh, early on, someone said, you know, do you ever tell your clients that you also came from a home where there was divorce? And I said, it's not something that I deliberately share with my clients at all. And they said, well, isn't it an easy way for you to make your way in? And I said, well, the, there's a presumption that if I were to say that I come from that type of environment to a person who also comes from that environment, that somehow I know his or her experience and somehow I could connect with that. And I said, I don't live with such a presumption. I said, I've, I've had my, my own experience and I don't presume that everyone else has the same or experiences it the same way. There's a universal sense of emotion that we need to tap into, all of us, whether or not we've been through some form of pain um, know what it's like to lose something, know what it's like to lose someone, know what it's like to be estranged from ourselves or lonely. We all know those feelings. And the best thing we could do is try to tap into that universal sense as opposed to trying to tap into our personal experience because uh, that's when things get dangerous. So this whole wounded healer point of view is a bit of a double-edged sword. I think there's a lot of benefits to it. Uh, but there's also a lot of potential harm that comes that comes along with it, where you could really begin to use your clients um, as a way of satisfying your own deficiencies, which is a really dangerous thing to do. We need to we need to learn to take care of ourselves, and then have so we could be present enough for our clients. And unfortunately, there's a lot of there's many therapists who are sort of using their clients to satisfy their own unmet needs, um, and it's something that we need to just pay attention to. Uh, and one thing, I just want to go back to a question you said before in the introduction, talking about like different ideas that exist when out within our community. I find myself saying this a lot to people and I, I keep getting shocked by the reactions that people have to it, that I keep telling people when they're exploring therapy and should I go to this therapist or not, that they should really pay attention to their own intuition about what it feels like in that room, what it feels like in that, in that, in that relationship. Um, and most people sort of go in and they let go of their own uh, sense of mastery and their own intuition about themselves because they're sitting with a professional, especially if that professional comes highly recommended. So that to them, they walk in with a sense of, well, this person knows and I don't. And all the research in the world points in the other, other direction, which says that clients could predict the outcome of positive therapy much better than therapists. So if you know, if you walk into a room and you don't feel quite right, then listen to that voice and get out of there. It's not quite right. If it doesn't feel right, then it's not right. 
And so I tell everyone, go to a therapist once or twice. And if, and by the second meeting, if it doesn't feel like this is a place that you're understood and you feel nurtured in, then try out another therapist. It's not right. And people often fight their way through that um, to their own detriment. Um, so that's an idea I definitely want to get out there as best I can, that your voice really, really matters. And, and therapists are people and they're fallible and they can make the same mistakes that the rest of us make. Um, and we need to pay attention to our own inner intuition um, as opposed to sort of letting go of it and letting the therapist sort of control the narrative. So, all right, so that's awesome. Hi, Nechem, you're here. Hi. I haven't been on the podcast for some time, so hello everyone out there. Um, so that's actually a perfect segue into the next question that I was gonna ask you. And in a certain sense, you answered a part of it, but I wanna dive into that a little bit deeper. Um, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, whether a person's looking for a therapist for themselves or for their children, you know, most of the podcasts that Basil has done have been a little bit more focused on the parenting side of it, meaning the, the focus on the kids. Um, but, you know, these questions, and I think today's conversation will be equally valuable for ourselves or for our children. And that is, you know, you answered one piece of it just now by saying that um, trust your intuition. And even if the therapist is the greatest therapist and has all the greatest recommendations, trust your intuition. But, you know, for a person who's just getting started, how, how do I even begin? There are so many modalities. There's so many um, styles. You know, there's a EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, traditional psychotherapy, psychoanalysts. You know, there's, you know, and, and I, yeah, a lot of these are, are buzzwords. I know that, you know, the difference between a psych psychologist and a psychoanalyst is like 10 years of training, you know, or, or something like, so, you know, if you're, if, if a person is starting down the mental health challenge road um, for themselves, for their children, you know, it doesn't matter who, where do I even start? It's a great question. And it's a really complicated question to answer because we have a really, a very well-educated consumer nowadays. The fact that your average consumer is aware of the differences in modalities, you know, the difference between IFS and CBT and DBT um, and trauma work versus traditional, you know, uh, behavioral work. The fact that consumers know so much about it on the one hand is wonderful because they could kind of look for something that could satisfy whatever it is that they're struggling with. But on the other hand, I'm also finding that it's a bit of a, a distraction as well. Um, because at the end of the day, when you look at what really helps a person get better, um, very often, uh, it's not the specific modality that they're using. You know, a much stronger indicator as to whether or not therapy is going to be successful is the, the strength of the relationship uh, that exists between client and patient, uh, between therapist and patient or therapist and client, however you want to conceptualize it. Um, so when we're talking about different modalities, these are things that in a very specific circumstance, you could say, I need a niche type of treatment because I'm stuck in a certain way and I need to find a way through and overcome it. But the traditional client who's looking to get help for themselves, what they really should be looking for is a safe space. Uh, you know, I, I long ago got rid of this idea of like the, the better therapist versus the worst therapist. There's just the right therapist for each person. Um, and so long as they're looking at it through that lens, then they're going to search and it may take a little time for them to find it. But the quality of the relationship, the safety that exists in that space um, is so much stronger of an indicator than the methodology, the methodology that's being used. And you can look at all the research in the world sort of backing this up, especially the work of Wampold and, and a few others that kind of, and Miller, they speak about these ideas that the greatest indicator for success 
is number one, not even the relationship. The greatest indicator of success in therapy is the support network that exists around the client. Does he have the right family? Does he have a family that's supporting him or her in the process? Um, if it's a child, are the parents on board? If it's a spouse, is the spouse on board? Uh, that's the greatest indicator for success. The second greatest indicator is the relationship. And then the, the, the eighth or ninth indicator is the methodology. Um, so methodology is what therapists use to conceptualize their work. Um, if they, they, they see, each therapist has a certain set of lenses by which they see the world. So when a therapist puts on their glasses, do they see it through the lens of IFS? Do they see it through the lens of CBT or DBT? Um, and, and the better therapists are ones that they're integrated, that their methodology is very much aligned with who they are as people. Um, but what you're really looking for, unless it's very specific, a specific need, um, it, it goes back to that statement you were saying before about trauma, trauma, trauma. At this point, like the catchphrase of trauma has been so overly used and misused um, that people are just saying, I need trauma work. We're, we're, they really don't understand what they're saying. They're just saying, I, I know I'm in a lot of pain. I know I'm hurting and I want to resolve that pain. I want to somehow fix it. But they're calling it trauma work. Um, so for the well-informed client, the one who's been to a lot of therapy, who then their therapist says, hey, listen, I think you're stuck in a certain area and using a certain approach will be helpful to you, then it's very good to understand these methodologies. But aside from that, the relationship is much more important. That's interesting. Um, I would have I thought that the best indicator actually would be somebody who wants to grow and be better, like that desire for change and the desire like with a growth mindset. But yeah, it's, it's a huge factor, meaning that to me, without that therapy is a failure to launch. Therapy will never take off. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate reality that therapy is a great tool, uh, but it's not the only tool. It's one of the tools. Um, and it's a tool that only works really if a client is interested in, in having it work. Um, if someone is not interested in therapy, there's very little a therapist could do to help them in that space. So there, there needs to be a willingness for therapy to work. I once heard an expression that uh, you have to date for the right therapist. And it sounds like kind of like that's what you're saying. Very much so. Absolutely. You're looking for the right person for you. Uh, and often it's once we find that person that we can understand what our inner language is. Um, we often don't know what we need to do until we encounter it. And then we have that moment that's like, this is what I was looking for. Um, and instead of looking for that, people tend to be, you know, catchphrase, they're looking for catchphrases. Oh, I need this. Um, and at the end of the day, if the therapist is integrated with themselves and that theory really works with who they are, then they'll do it really well. But consider for a second, a therapist who is very pragmatic and practical and their whole life, that's how they think and that's how they operate. So they're naturally drawn towards the pragmatic practical therapies like CBT, DBT, cognitive therapy, um, and then so that person is like, I want to get advanced training. So they get training in IFS, which is a much more complicated form of therapy. It's not very clean. It doesn't have all these like very direct rules. You have to learn to navigate unknown spaces. So this person may have the letters after their name that I'm IFS trained, but it's not who they are. Um, and the, the best form of therapist that you want is one who is whatever they're doing in that room is very aligned with who they are as people. So what you're getting is a very genuine form of that approach, as opposed to what we're getting today. You have many therapists, they graduate school and, uh, and they jump right into these trainings before having a real inner language with how they really operate in that room. 
Um, so you want to get a sense of who you are. You want it to be honest. And, and just because someone is trained in something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they do it well. Right. Um, anyone could sign up for a training and then say that I'm trained in this. And that doesn't mean that it's integrated. That, that's fascinating. What that essentially means is some people with the greatest you know, credentials might actually be a lousy therapist because they're not being true to who they are as a person. And therefore the, the therapy that they're providing is not authentic. Not authentic. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And you see this a lot with many of the modalities that people sort of get trained in it. It's not really them. They sort of advertise, this is what I do. But then the client comes to therapy saying, I'd like to do this type of work. And the therapist keeps like unconsciously pushing them off. We'll do it later. I want to get to know you. I want to develop a relationship. And at the end of the day, what it is, is they're not very comfortable with that methodology. So maybe they'll use it at some point, but it's not really authentic to them. So you want, you want to go to a therapist that could explain to you what it is that they do. And when they say the words that they say, you want to believe them. You know, you want to feel like this is really who this person is, as opposed to this seems very foreign to them. They have the right language, but it just doesn't seem to be who they are. And the best therapists I know are those who are, you know, it was, a, it was, it was really nice. The other night I did a, a podcast with my wife. Um, it was the yeah, first yeah. time we did it together. Incredible podcast, incredible. Thank you. Um, my wife is a, just a wonderful person and, and I am grateful every day that she said yes. And um, which took a little convincing by the way, just to throw it out there. But eventually she came around. <laughs> Actually, I have an, my oldest, he's 18 years old. And he joined the podcast, he joined like the live. And I asked him afterwards, I actually commented that he was there. And I asked him afterwards, um, what was it like for you? Because so far as I know, that was the first time he saw the two of us do our work in person. Like this is, and I think the greatest, most nurturing comment that he reflected back was, he said, I didn't expect it to be any different than what I saw. Mm -hmm. um, that, that who we are as parents, who we are as people, he saw us also reflected in who we are as therapists. And, and if everything I'm saying right now is to look for that, and I'm not suggesting that I'm you know, the integrated therapist, I'm far from that, I'm, I have a lot of work to do. Um, but just hearing that comment, I think from my son sort of personifies this idea that I'm trying to share. Yeah, no, it's Beautiful. a great thing. It's actually, you know, because at, at a recent workshop that you gave, you talked about how you journey together with the client. Can you explain what that means? Because you're the therapist and as a therapist, you know, they're turning to you for guidance to work through an issue or a trauma and they need you to lead. So what does it mean that you're journeying with them? I'm wondering if it's connected to this idea that you're with them and that you feel for them and you're connected to them. But what, yeah. what, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I was referencing a particular approach to therapy. There are many lenses. We were talking before about, you know, every therapist has their own set of glasses and, and a way that they see the world. Um, I don't want to get too technical. We could, you know, I could break up the three primary approaches by which people see the world and how they understand their role as a healer. Um, but I was really referencing a, a theoretical approach called humanistic um, slash existential, you know, philosophy when it comes to therapy. And there are many ways to posture yourself um, as a therapist. You could either, you know, be the the wise, all-knowing individual in the room that someone comes, they have a problem and you sort of listen and, uh, and take in whatever it is that they're saying and provide them with some form of solution. You know, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I think you could do. Um, and that's kind of the lens that that therapist is, is seeing the world through is that they're a teacher. You know, there's someone who could give you some type of guidance and perspective. And that tends to be a pretty, 
uh, behavioral perspective, which is this is not about a relationship so much as much as it is you have a problem, you present it to me and I'll provide you with a solution. Um, I'm the one who provides you with the way to live your life and it'll be better for you. Um, and that's one approach, but again, it's very distant. Um, it's like going to an orthopedist. Your hand is broken, I'm gonna tell you how to fix it, that's it. Correct. And when you look at any cognitive behavioral therapy like manual, that's really what it will say. Like, you know, someone comes in with anxiety, so you have protocol. You do step A, B, and C, and then if that fails, then you move on to, you know, the next, you know, few different ideas to help a person move forward. That's one particular lens. Uh, another lens is that of, you know, the, the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic perspective of Freud, where you're really an analyst. You're like an observer in the room, picking up on these unconscious messages that are emerging from the client um, who's in a bit of a compromised, you know, lesser aware state. So their essence could emerge and then you sort of analyze it. And that's one, another way of looking at it, but it's again, a little bit distant. And then you have a humanistic approach, an existential approach, which postures therapy as I'm no different than you. I'm a therapist and yes, I did the training and yes, I'm in a position that I can help you. Um, but at the core, at our essence, we're not very different. Um, I have problems, you have problems and we'll find a way to journey together. Now that doesn't mean that you're, you're presenting yourself as I don't really know what I'm doing, but rather you present yourself in a very humane way that problems are a part of life. Problems exist within all of us. And as a result of that, my posture is that as one of a fellow traveler, that you're struggling, I'm struggling. Um, I'm, not gonna, I, I'm not gonna bring my struggles to you. You're the client who's here to get help, but that you create an environment that is very accepting of the fact that we're humane and we're fallible and we make mistakes and that's okay. And that's a part of life. So you're, you're kind of normalizing it like for them. And that's a big piece for people. Yeah. It comes up as empathy because now what I'm going through is normal and other people experience this as well. Correct. Um, and in that type of approach, I, I, one of my teachers, uh, Dr. David Schwartz, he lives in Crown Heights, a beautiful man. He, um, he would describe this process to me many times where he would say, imagine have a person, they get isolated, somehow stuck on an island and they're abandoned and there's no one there and they hear a helicopter coming and they get all excited, finally, I'm free. And it comes closer and closer and it hovers over this island and, and uh, someone drops down a, uh, a ladder and, and the therapist climbs down onto the island and the guy's all excited, he's packing up his stuff, he's ready to get onto the helicopter and fly away. And then the helicopter just leaves the therapist and the man there. And the guy's like, what, what's wrong with you? Just help us get out of here. And the therapist said, I hear, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> um, and the client's like, do you know how to get off the island? And the therapist is like, I, you know, I've, I've helped people get off of islands before. I'm not quite sure how we'll get off the island, but we'll get off the island. We'll find a way together. We'll find a way off the island. And that was his analogy of what a fellow traveler really is. Um, and if you read the works of, of Bugenthal and Yalom and, other existentialists like Kierkegaard and Heidegger, you know, this is their posture. This is the way they kind of saw the world. They didn't see it through very, you know, idealistic lenses. They, th they saw it through a lens of realism mm -hmm. of, of we as human beings, we, we suffer and we suffer together and that's okay. And we find a way through. Um, let, me, let me push back on that just for a second. Cause while we were chuckling, cause the analogy is, is very, is cute and funny. Um, but, and, and and there's no there's no question that that humanistic approach is is 
so authentic and so much more relatable. I, you know, I, I have a therapist that I went to for many years and he's a psychoanalyst. So I'm the way you just described it, it suddenly helped me understand him. Um, and I remember he shared a personal detail of his own life um, that he was going through a divorce and it, it devastated me. Like I couldn't go back to him for a few months because I needed to process that because he's Mr. Perfect. And if he can't keep his own house in order, how's he gonna help me get my house in order? Um, so so I, I get that piece of the puzzle, but on the flip side, don't I really, really want someone to help me get off the island? And there's, I, I, there, I guess it's maybe, maybe I'm looking for someone who has my answers and maybe there aren't answers. Maybe it's just we can just journey to find it together because maybe they don't have the answer. Well, it's not suggesting in any way that you don't have the answer. It's suggesting I don't know the answer at this particular moment. And, and I've done this a lot and I know how to help people off islands. I'm not sure exactly what our specific journey will look like, but we'll get off the island. Meaning there's a strong confidence that comes into the room with that struggle saying, we'll get off this island together. Um, and don't worry, we'll, we'll do it as a unit. Um, and I'm not quite sure how yet, but we will find a way through. So it's not like we're in this unknown. The therapist is obviously the leader in the room. He's obviously the one guiding the ship. He's the one who's asking the questions and, and figuring out you know, why we got stuck on the island in the first place and what we need to ultimately do to get off. But the posture is, even the way they sit is different. You know, an analyst will kind of sit back and take notes and they're an observer and a behaviorist will sort of sit and direct and a humanist will sort of sit and lean in and listen. Um, and that's just the three different postures that exist with these three primary approaches. So by no means is it, you know, I don't know how, you know, we're not gonna get off and let's live in that unknown. Um, there's a real strong sense of, of confidence and mastery that we will, but there's also a very strong feeling of humanism that we, do, we don't quite know how yet and we'll, we'll do it, we'll figure it out. I love that. I really think that's a, a, a good analogy and a good explanation and I, and I appreciate those three different um, lenses explained so clearly. Um, because I've actually been thinking about this idea a lot. You know, I've heard people say and people say that, you know, therapy takes many years to actually see results. You have to really be committed. It's not something that you come in and it's like a quick fix. Um, and I've heard some people that, you know, are skeptical and they said, you know, right now it seems like we're having a mental health crisis. And it, it seems like there's so many therapists that are, you know, making money off of this and they're you know, charging a lot of money and, but not many people are being healed. Actually, we see more right now, the people that are hurting. And so I guess my question is, what is the definition of success when it comes to therapy? When are you like better or healed or when can you end therapy? I mean, it seems like it's, doesn't really have a start and end date. Well, well, first of all, it really depends on your orientation. There, there are approaches to therapy that are really designed to be succinct, short-term, directive. We have an issue, you come in, you fix it, you move on with your life. Um, and, and you resolve that particular problem. I think you're, the way that you're asking the question, you're really asking it from a, a much deeper place. Um, and First of all, I just want to comment, I back up for a second. I think that there are a lot of people who are healing. Um, when we talk about the idea of a standard of everyone being healed, I think that's a very high, unrealistic standard to set for anybody. Um, I've, I've rarely encountered individuals who are healed. I've encountered enlightened people, people who are pursuing healing, people who are very connected with themselves and, and are comfortable with the path that they're on. You know, when you look at 
the, this term self-actualization. You know, Abraham Maslow speaks about this concept of a person arriving at this idealized space of I'm actualized as a human being. Um, and he never describes it as a person without problems. He doesn't describe it as a person who's fully resolved and their self-esteem is fully intact. He describes it as a person who's aware of their strength, aware of their weakness and limitations, who's aware of the fact that they have a lot of work to do and a lot of growth uh, to, to make in this, this very fragile life that we're all living. Um, so it's not the state of arrival. And I think when we hold therapy to such a standard, then we'll remain frustrated. Um, and I think that the fact that we're in a state where therapy, there's a lot of mental health issues that are coming up is, I really believe we're in a state of transition, not only as a community, but as, as a world. Um, the, these ideas that therapy are introducing, it's a very new profession. It's only 120 years old. When you think about it in the broader context of the world, it's, it's a really new profession. Um, and the fact that we have um, an awareness that's made its way into the world, you know, when you look back at the time of, of the Rambam, uh, Maimonides, the, the, the opiate of the time, was really philosophy. People were looking to the sky. They were looking um, to try and understand the meaning of the world, the, the meaning of our existence. That was what everyone focused on. Today, what we're focusing on is psychology, is our own well-being and our own internal emotions. Um, and that's a transition. You go back 20, 30 years, people didn't think the way we're thinking today. So the fact that we have a lot of people who are struggling is simply because there's a new language in the world. There's a new feeling that we've introduced. And as a result of that, we're in transition, we're in state of flux and people are unsure of where they are. And I fully believe that we'll settle down at a certain point where this will become something that we all kind of live with, we all understand, and it's not gonna be the same crisis that we're in now. We're in crisis because we're in transition. And to me, when transition ends, it could settle down a little bit. Um, a lot of, at this point, everyone believes everyone needs to go to therapy. That's because we're in the state of transition and it's very far from the truth. There are a lot of people who are doing really well, but because we're in this state of transition, everyone's doubting that. And even people who are happy are like, am I sure that I'm happy? I, I, am I sure everything's okay? Maybe there's a problem. And, and they're even being told by their friends, you're only happy because you're in denial. <laughs> um, so you're kind of stuck. And, and because it's not, we, don't, we haven't established a new set of rules. We know what we're moving away from, which is a lack of awareness of self, and a, a running from our own emotions. That we're, that's where we're coming from and we're trying to avoid. But, but I don't, don't think we any, know where we're going. I don't know if there's any metrics, but would you say that, you know, if we had to compare, well, let's not get involved in the Holocaust, but, you know, 50 years ago to today, there's more anxiety today, more depression today, or just more awareness of how I'm feeling today? I think there's a lot more permission to feel anxious and a lot more permission to be depressed. It, it, it's um, almost like, like a problem that's a result of, of how wonderful life is these days? Well, I think there's a lot, you know, it's a, it's a very deep philosophical question. Are we doing okay? You know, are we all right? And I, I, I'm not quite sure we're doing okay. Um, we're definitely trying our best. Um, but I think that we've just created a, a situation where there's a lot more permission. I'm sorry, I just wanna shut this. Um, there's a lot more permission to express however it is that you feel. Um, and as a result of that, there are more people who are anxious. There are more people that are depressed. And there are other things that we could go into. I think there are other reasons why there's more anxiety and depression, meaninglessness, and directionless. And I think parents are very disempowered at this point. Um, every, every book that you read is either telling you that you're doing a good job or a terrible job. 
um, and people are really struggling with what their role actually is. Am I supposed to be a friend to my child? Am I supposed to be an authority to my child? And I think even that very basic question, we're having a hard time answering today because we're transitioning. Um, and, and I fully believe that we'll get to a place where it makes a little bit more sense than it does at this moment. Um, but anytime you introduce a new energy into the world, it's going to create chaos. And that's what psychology has done. Yeah, I think that's um, a good a good understanding. I've never heard that term, like we're in transition. That's such a really incredible point because our grandparents were trying to survive and our parents were trying to deal with their parents' trauma. And now we have all our needs met, but our emotional needs are like starting to really come to the surface and we're all noticing what it is that we're feeling. It's like we're noticing our feelings for the first time, even though yeah, it's been years. Let me Let me ask you a practical question. You know, I see this in my coaching career. You know, people want referrals. You know, they want they want to know who can I go to. I need a you know a, a marriage coach or a dating coach or, and even in the thin therapist, there it seems like there's a sh shortage of therapists or good therapists. And, so certainly in the from world. Yeah, and and the cost is prohibitive, and unless you're like in a treatment center of sorts, it's almost never covered by insurance, and. So my question is, are there any other alternative ways for people to find support or help? For example, you know, you see so much healing in the recovery world and AA meetings all over America. No one's being paid for it. They're just sitting there with some regular people just like them. And they're getting so much from those meetings. And it doesn't cost a penny. It's free. And it's so effective. So are there other or more of these kinds of services or programs available to help people that right. are struggling? You know, can I jump in? I want to break that into two questions because I think they both need answers. One is, is there a better referral system just because it seems like there's such a shortage? I, I know that that's what you do is you train. So, so you're, you're, I know you are part of the solution, but it just seems like there's such a shortage. You call people and then, oh, I could see you in 10 months. Well, in 10 months, I don't know yeah. where I'll be then. And then the second question that there's the last, you know, are there other, you know, ways of supporting ourselves that are less traditional therapy? Yeah, I... I can't tell you how much pain this question causes me. Um, you know, when you hear stories of people who are, you know, really struggling with their mental health, and then you pile upon that struggle, at, let's throw out a number. If let's say someone is needing to spend $1,200 a month on private therapy for once a week, that's like literally one session a week, and it's easy for it to cost $1,200 a month. Now, there's, there's a very large segment of our community that's not an issue for them. $1,200 is not a big deal. But there's an even much larger segment of our community that's, that, that's prohibitive. I spoke to a woman the other day, and she was uh, from Israel, uh, very conscientious, in the healing profession herself, and describing to me her therapeutic process. And she said at some point, she said, 20% of my collective family income is going to my therapist. 20% of her income. Uh, and I, I, all I wanted to do was cry. Um, it's, it's the most horrific thing. And we've really dug ourselves into a hole. I just want to go to David Schwartz. Uh, he happens to be a Lubavitch man. And uh, I don't know what he charges. I'm not sure what his fee is. But I know that for who he is as a person, he could charge a lot more than, than what he does. And I remember someone asked him, they said, why, why don't you charge more? And he said, one day I'm going to have to answer to my rebel. Um, one day I'm going to have to be held accountable for my own actions. And I, and I want to go in with a clean, with a clean slate. And it's not only his rebel, it's the answer to Hashem, it's the answer, answer to his higher power. 
and and he speaks a real truth and there's a there's a reason why i think the most lucrative way for any therapist to spend their career is in private practice charging you know three to five hundred dollars a session it's the best way to make money and it's a tremendous draw and the fact is that we live in a community that's willing to support that and until we find a way to introduce really good yet affordable therapy which is really what i'm trying to do with this with this clinic and i'm not i'm not alone in this um there are many people who are trying to do it as well um then we are we're really stuck we're a bit in a bind when it comes to actual therapy um, and we need more people who are willing to step up and say, let us create environments, let us nurture those environments, let us create reasons why good therapists want to stay in those environments, even though they're not getting paid what they could get on the open market. Um, we need to find real, real solutions and we need real thinkers to sit down together and come up with that. Um, because it's tragic when you have any family that's spending that, that amount of money on therapy simply because they can. At this point, therapists could charge whatever they want because... There are a lot of people in need and there's a lot within our community. We always want the best. So I've, I've literally had people who said like, you know, and I, I have a very limited practice. I see around 10 people a week, which in the private practice sector is really limited. Um, who've said, listen, I'll pay you for the full year. You know, people are willing to do things like that in advance in order to get to what they believe is the right thing for them. Um, and and it's a real misguided perspective because at the end of the day, it comes down to the relationship anyway. So it's not so much about the top guy. Um, obviously, with experience comes better skill. Um, so we need to find real solutions to that. But with regards to other question, therapy is one, one answer to a problem. And it's really designed for a person who is open to the idea, open to getting help, willing to explore themselves, willing to face themselves which makes up a certain percentage of the population. Um, someone once asked me like, is there other ways to heal? And I have in my office, I don't have textbooks, but I do have Tehillim. And I said like, if you really read Tehillim, the way it was written, and you experience the humanity of, of what, what David HaMelech brought into this world, and the agony and the freedom and the sadness and the ex exhilaration, it's all there, all human emotion is present. And if you read it with a wholehearted, uh, perspective that it can provide you with a tremendous amount of healing. If you have a friend that you're willing to be vulnerable with and share your life with them, it could provide you with a tremendous amount of healing. A spouse could do that. Children could do that. Some of the greatest healing that you have for people who have traumatized past is creating an environment where their children are not being traumatized the way they were. And that's healing in its own right. Uh, we, we need some more solutions in terms of actual help. Um, but we need everyone to chip in. Therapists need to take it easy and start, you know, reflecting on what they're charging and creating environments where there's more accessible therapy to people. Um, but it's a real, the question you're asking is profound and it's a much greater question than any answer I could provide. Um, so keep thinking about it. So I love that. You're going to process, you're going to think on that. Um, the questions seem to be that way. They sometimes are better than the answers. Um, but I, I think as a community, we need to be really thinking about that more, how we can, you know, really get from bottom up and really try to see what we can do to help people that are struggling in an in a, in affordable and manageable way. I, I also think that if we train teachers, um, that could be one, another step in the right direction to be empathetic, to look at each child as their own world, to really see each person as a, their own literal world and 
look at them and be there for them. Parents too, we have large families and we're just trying to get things done, but we have to look at each child and say, what does this child need? Yes. All right, so, so you indicated earlier and, and in, in previous conversations, both on the podcast and just in the, like you said, these days, everyone's an expert, thanks to Rabbi Google, Dr. Google. So we all know so much, you know, and clearly at some point talk therapy hits a ceiling and, and, and then there's a trauma or something that, that, you know, you have to maybe go outside of the, the regular framework to address a specific thing, but let's, let's dial it back and go back to, um, even though our oldest is 20, but our youngest is still four. So we, we consider, consider ourselves a young family. You're raising a family. Like you said, the world is going through the transition. I love that, but I really, I'm going to really let that process because that is very, very profound. I, I want to understand more about that. But we're raising young families and we start watching our kids or ourselves, but, but I, I, I want to keep it as broad as possible, heading down a dark direction. Uh, the kid is anxious, doesn't want to go. to, And, and I'm, I'm just pulling random examples out of my head. You know, they're, they're too afraid to go to overnight camp when at an age that many of their siblings, let's say, did. Or, they're, they're, you know, they're afraid of the monster under the bed. They're starting to head down. You know, and so there's a point where it's within what we would call normal age appropriate stuff. And then it's starting to head into that space where it's a little bit um, too much or you know, they can't make it through a day of school, or you know, it starts to hit, hit that point where now we're starting to see some red flags or some warning signs. Um, I guess, what can we do preventatively? And what, can, what's, what might be the first steps to do once we start seeing these warning signs? Yeah, well, I think you know, the two of you, you know, speaking about parenting um, and the, the power of it, meaning I think at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of struggles that people have emerge from the homes that they come from, period. Um, I would say that that accounts from the overwhelming majority of, of suffering and pain in the world. And if we as parents find a way to create environments that are safe and connected, individualistic, um, it's not like a, a one size fits all for every child, every child's different. Permitting ourselves to, to know them, to, to love them, to have a good time with them, you know, to, to enjoy the, the time that we share with them, to really enjoy them, which is something I'd, I'd love for us to do more of. We've become like so afraid and so serious to, to have a good time. I can't tell you, like it was so wonderful yesterday. I had a few hours. My boys took off a little bit. They're working and just going golfing with them and being, you know, just enjoying presence. Forget about interventions. Forget about, you know, all the, like, we need to make sure we have all these deep conversations just spending time and enjoying their presence. So this way they know that there's a connection and they know that they're thought of and they know that there's someone who's always there for them. These things go such a long way and it's not so much about reading a book or having a skill. It's just about opening up our own hearts to love our children and not holding back with that, just to, to love them with everything we have. And I think thankfully we live at a time where there's so much awareness. Um, and if there's a real legitimate problem, we have, we have places that we could reach out to and call. Aside from our, our, our local RUV, we also have these wonderful programs like Relief and Amutim, and it's their job. I used to keep track of you know, the therapists that I like doing different types of work. And, and to be quite honest, I've stopped you know, as these programs have, have gotten much better at what they do. Obviously, it's become really challenging for them because especially after, during and after coronavirus, we can't say after, we're far from after, but um, during coronavirus, it really... It, it struck a chord of anxiety in the world and the amount of mental health issues that have emerged. 
you speak to any private practitioner, you speak to any agency, uh, there's simply no room because the world was not prepared. We kind of lied to ourselves and believing that we could prevent everything and that we're, you know, all knowing and capable of, of preventing any harm in the world. And we're not. And that was a reminder, a little, a little kiss from Hashem to remind us that we're, we're human and we're not in control of everything. Um, but what that's done is really disrupted us. Uh, but there are places that we could turn and we could turn to and say, we need some help. We need some guidance. And with the proper care, we'll, and Hashem's help, we'll get to the right place. Yeah, that's great. I think that it's a very good point that you bring up. Yeah. Parents can really heal their children, um, our connection to our children, like that whole idea of unconditional love and not focusing on what they're doing wrong, but focusing on what they're doing right and seeing them as a whole human. It's, it's very healing. Shimon Russell and, and, and everyone talks about that. You know, the, you know, I guess the best preventative medicine is, uh, is keeping those connections up those connections going. You know, I, I heard somebody say something, you were talking about coronavirus, is that we're not being kind to ourselves to not recognize that the entire world went through a trauma. Now, not everybody got traumatized by the trauma, but themselves to allow themselves to recognize that they went through something very, very serious. Now, thankfully, some people did better with it and, and didn't don't seem to be as impacted, but the fact is it happened. And we have yeah, to recognize. And who didn't experience isolation? Who didn't experience loneliness? Who didn't contemplate moving to a new neighborhood because they were disconnected from the people that they were accustomed to seeing? I mean, the, this the existential loneliness that we all collectively felt was profound for everybody. I don't know anyone who's, you know, just was able to miraculously avoid that reality. I know you have only an hour, so I want to respect your time and. Thank you for taking time to sit with us and talk with us um, and further help um, our communities. And are there any you know, parting thoughts or advice you wanna share with my listeners? Keep doing what you're doing. Keep spreading you know, messages of hope and, and care and love and connection and, and healing. Um, and uh, we have to remember that we're human. I think we've sort of lived in this strange time where there's these perfectionistic ideas that are floating around that somehow, you know, everything is just going to be perfect and every child is sort of going to developmentally make their way beautifully through life. And I think most of us as adults, we could reflect back at our own childhood and realize that a part of that struggle is also what made us. And a part of our suffering was important for us to have because it defined us and, and permitted us to become what we ultimately are. Um, and, and if we approach even our own children with that manner and say, they too will make those mistakes. They too will, will scrape their knee and cry and, and, and have to suffer a little bit, but that will also provide them with some degree of identity and, and mission. Um, it permits us to, to join them in that journey as opposed to trying to correct everything and protect them from everything. And I just love what the two of you are doing. And I just hope that uh, Hashem continues to give you the strength to share the message that you're trying to bring to the community, which is, you know, that of healing and, and, and self-care. And I just, I so appreciate the opportunity to, to be here with you, spend this time and share whatever messages we can of, of hope. Right, I'm, I'm going to push one more second. So there's, I, I've heard you share a story about the Mitla Rebbe. We're Chabad, we're Chabad next, we can't help it. Um, yes. I, I've heard you share a story about the Mitla Rebbe a bunch of times. You want to share one more time for, for this listening I audience? Love, I love that story. Um, because it's so it's it's probably the most of the most common questions I get um, as a professor within the from community 
is that why do we see so much, uh, so much, so much of our relationship between uh, people who struggle with within their homes, within their own parents, um, and their sense of religiosity? And the best answer I've ever encountered was that of the middle of Rebbe and, and his own story and, and what he shared, where he shared, they said, the Aserah Sedibros, we have two tablets. We have the first one about man's relationship to Hashem, uh, and the second one's about man's relationship to other people. He said the one exception is, is the last one on the, on the, the first tablet, which is our need to um, respect others, um, respect our parents, sorry. Um, to honor our parents. And he said, what is it doing on the Ben Adam Lamakom section? How does it, doesn't really fit in. This is our relationship to people. Um, and what is it, where is it about the relationship to Hashem? And he shares a profound insight, which is our whole ability to understand uh, the ineffable, understand what it, what it means to, to relate to Hashem in the universe. The closest, um, the closest metaphor we have to that concept is our parents. They are the ones who love us unconditionally. They are the ones who are capable of loving 10, 12, 15, two children at the same time in the same way. And without them, we wouldn't be able to understand the concept of Hashem loving us individually. Um, so he said the conduit that we have to Hashem is directly through our parents. Um, so it belongs in that, in that tablet. It belongs in our relationship to Hashem is about learning to honor our, honor our parents because they serve that same role internally for us. Um, and if that's fractured, then almost inevitably our relationship with Hashem becomes equally fractured um, because it becomes hard to understand what it means to have an all loving and embracing entity in the universe that just sees the good in us. Um, yet if we have that in our own lives from our parents, then it's a lot easier for us to equate that to Hashem and lean into that love um, for, it, for it already lives within us. That's so beautiful and so loaded on so many levels. You just scratch the surface with that one, but we're going to let yeah. you, we're going to respect your time. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's a great yeah. honor. Once again, thank you for your time. And thanks for giving us another good podcast to really just reflect and think about and process all these different ideas that you shared with us today. So wishing you a good Shabbos and an easy fast. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All the best. All the best.